Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Happy New Year, Weird Studies listener. I'm J.F. Martel. Colin Wilson was born in 1931, the child of working-class parents in the English Midlands. A true autodidact, he was only 24 when his first book, The Outsider, made the bestseller list in 1956. Between then and his death in 2013, he would write another hundred books of fiction and nonfiction, almost all of which would deal, in one way or another, with the meaning and mystery of existence. Wilson was a modern Plutarch, His life stands as a shining example of thought put in the service of life. His curiosity was boundless, and his willingness to entertain hard-to-think ideas exemplary. In this episode, we tackle Wilson's 600-page opus, The Occult, which upon publication in 1971 signaled a decisive paranormal turn in his work. On the surface, The Occult is an idiosyncratic history of Western esoterica. Turn to page one, however, and it proves to be a kind of manifesto, a call on modern readers to take more seriously what we mean when we talk about the occult. And what we mean for Wilson is Faculty X, a latent, ineffable power of the human mind and soul to reach beyond itself, literally and figuratively. No single conversation could do justice to the breadth and depth of this strange and monumental work, so I hope we will inspire listeners who aren't familiar with it to give it a look. And if all goes well, our conversation will also inspire some listeners to have a look at our Patreon page and make supporting this podcast a 2020 resolution. For a few bucks a month, these lucky seekers will unlock a welter of extra content released over the last year and get to enjoy the new stuff we put out between every episode. This includes bonus audio conversations, bits of correspondence, musings dealing with themes discussed on the show, and full-blown essays available nowhere else. So just when you thought the world couldn't get any weirder, here comes the Weird Studies Patreon to make it so weird, it may just start making sense again. Not that we have any more answers on Patreon than we do here on the show, but sometimes it's the questions that really matter. The following passage from Wilson's book Enigmas and Mysteries puts in nicely, quote, Imagine a book of unexplained mysteries written by a contemporary of Shakespeare, It might include the mystery of the falling stars that sweep through the sky foretelling disaster, the mystery of the kraken, the giant sea devil with 50-foot tentacles, the mystery of monster bones, sometimes found in caves or on beaches. Such a book would be a curious mixture of truth and absurdity, fact and legend. We would all feel superior as we turned its pages and murmured, of course they didn't know about the comets and giant squids and dinosaurs. If this book should happen to find its way into the hands of our remote descendants, they may smile pityingly and say, it's incredible to think that they knew nothing about epsilon fields or multiple psychic feedback or cross-gravitational energies. They didn't even know about the ineluctability of time. But let us hope that such a descendant is in a charitable mood and might add, and yet they managed to ask a few of the right questions. Enjoy the show.
Colin Wilson, assholes. Colin Wilson. <laughs> My daughter the other day said, you say that just about every day. The like, assholes Fill thing? in the blank, assholes. Yeah. That's right, <laughs> assholes. I don't know why I find that expression so funny. <laughs> I, I just find, you know, I find the word asshole funny. Yeah, like not just the word, but the actual object it refers the to. The actual thing. Yeah. And people, people who are assholes are also, let's face it, kind of funny. Right. I mean, they're yeah. assholes. We yeah. don't like them, but they're but there's something funny about assholishness. Yeah. You can't have a good comedy without an asshole in it. No, in fact, you can't, nothing happens without assholes. God, what a thought. Okay, well, <laughs> we've just unlocked the mystery of the universe. Assholes are necessary. Right. I like to think so anyway. It justifies my existence. Just this morning, I was... Uh, explaining to the girls this is the what I can't even get into what brought us to that topic or how but I was explaining to them how truth is to your mouth what what stench is to your ass <laughs> if you're I said if you fucked if up you, thing to say if you farted <laughs> if you farted and it smelled like roses your ass would be lying that's why that you need, I don't know what I was trying to get at, but they're like, dad, is that philosophy? I'm like, yes. So weird that we have this kind of exchange uh, after I've had that funny conversation. That is, that's really funny. Yeah. Um, apropos of nothing, there's a Rick and Morty episode, which was just, uh, what's it like cosmic television or something? It was, it was basically a show, a plotless show where the idea is that the characters of Rick and Morty are just watching TV, but it's this intergalactic, uh, interdimensional TV channel that just shows you shows from alternate dimensions and realities. And just basically it's a way that the show writers could think of all kinds of crazy shit that didn't work in a plot right? and just stitch them all together. And one of the concepts was a guy who has a show about personal space and how he's all about personal space. And it becomes instantly clear this guy's completely crazy and paranoid. Right. Everything feels like it's confining him. And, and at the end, feels like his skin is confining him. So he tears off his own skin. <laughs> so he's just this flayed man with like fucking muscles and blood. And you, you hear the reaction of the characters like, oh, gross. And then... <laughs> The scientist character, you hear him saying, ha ha, what an asshole. <laughs> you know, I take personal space pretty seriously up to the point that I don't even care about this. I'm not even interested in having this skin on my personal space. Oh, oh my God. Oh, it hurts. <laughs> what an asshole. Oh, <laughs> why is that so funny it just is <laughs> oh. anyway the occult yeah. <laughs> let us now speak upon the occult I think that some people would have uh, characterized Colin Wilson as an asshole of sorts you think he, well he was reviled in Britain he came out yeah, like by, by assholes yeah by <laughs> right exactly I just don't understand well, I kind of do understand, actually. The inveterate hostility of the English literary and intellectual establishment to Colin Wilson. I don't know. I think that there's that class thing in Britain, right? Oh, yeah. 
So maybe our British listeners will be able to enlighten us on this. But it seems to me that he became quite a sensation in the tabloids at some point. Yeah. Because he was saying grandiose things. Uh, and he was also one of those like poet mozi types at the time. Those ex- British yeah. existentialists, Johnny Come yeah. Latelys. Angry young men. He's Ang- grouped right. in with a, bu- a bunch of guys called the angry young men. That is it. Yeah. And so the literary t- establishment turned on him. But it's also because he wasn't a trained academic. He had no real, you know, he He, he was, didn't have much formal education. He was an autodidact. Right. Yeah. He was an autodidact and a brilliant one, I would say. And mm-hmm. that rubs establishments the wrong way sometimes, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Education, formal education, institutionalized education is totally a double-edged sword. You know, I mean, this is not going to come as news to anybody that in a formal educational context, you can be much more in the swim, in conversations. If you're not a didact, you're much more on your own. It's harder to find a community. And so there can be all kinds of great benefits to being largely socialized within, for example, academia. But then, of course, the great drawback is that by the same token that you're being put in dialogue with other people, you're being socialized to what other people at this particular historical moment think is compelling to our interests, what's important and what isn't. Oh, well, we mm-hmm. don't talk about those kinds of things. Right. Um, and you know, there's a kind of stubborn independence of mind in Colin Wilson's writing. Like, say what you will about the guy. He had a project and he was quite consistent about it from beginning to end. You could call it optimistic existentialism. Right. And I don't know if he would have been able to, I don't know, who knows? He seems like a, a man of unusually stubborn or tenacious habit of mind. So maybe regardless of where he had ended up, he would have ended up pursuing the same life's project. But I kind of get the feeling that he pissed off people from the establishment because he didn't hang around waiting for them to say it was okay for him to have these ideas. And I will tell you, in England, there is still a very strong visceral reaction that people of all different classes have against anybody uh, having ideas above their station. Yeah. He was educated by the British library system, right? He's one of those kids who went to the library religiously. Yeah, he was extraordinarily aimless for a long period of time, working in a variety of menial jobs. When he was 16, he was working as a lab tech and he was very depressed. He tells a story in his autobiography, Dreaming to Some Purpose. He found a bottle of uh, strychnine, maybe? Some deadly poison. He talks about unstoppering the bottle and standing there, fully contemplating ending his life because he could see no point to anything. And at that precise moment, he says, he had a sudden flash that he had a lower self that was trying to kill his higher self. Right. And his and he decided to throw in with his higher self, which was not having this. And he put the stopper back in the bottle and put it away. I mean, in a way, that's an origin story. That is where this kind of optimistic existentialism comes from. But it, in a much more mundane sense, it just sort of tells you about what his life was like, which was like, not a lot of formal education, hopping from one kind of bullshit job to another. And for a while, and this became part of his legend and why he became such a tabloid sensation. At a certain point, he was like, man, I fucking hate working. Like these stupid ass jobs that just are leeching away my 
creative energies. And he knew he had creative energies. He knew, like, I think a lot of creative people, and especially autodidacts who really amounted to something. Arnold Schoenberg, the composer, is another example. Um, he knew that he had something special in him. Uh, yeah. And he had this really strong self-belief. So he was like, you know, I got this idea. I'm going to buy a tent and a sleeping bag. And instead of working enough to pay the rent, I'm going to sleep out on the Hampstead Heath, which right. is a big park in London, at night. And then by day, I'm just going to spend all my time at the British Library. Yeah. That's and how he wrote in, The Outsider. And that's how he wrote The Outsider and became this formidably learned guy. He's, I mean, by all accounts, his book collection was insane. <laughs> at what point in the, uh, in the occult, he says, like, I was surprised uh, at my own sudden interest in the occult. I mean, I, I, I had always been kind of interested in the occult. I have a collection of 500 occult books. But it's like, <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> that's Most a casual interest have- for... Yeah. yeah, I know. I yeah. mean, that's a casual interest for Colin Wilson. Like, well, only 500 books. Yeah. Apparently yeah. had a huge collection. I've been reading, I haven't finished, but I've been reading Gary Lockman's uh, biography, Beyond the Robot, which is very, very good. One vignette right at the beginning of his book is talking about like going over to visit Colin Wilson for the first time and finding like, I don't know, 30,000 volumes in his house. His house just like everything is books. Right. Um and that's that's Wilson. I mean, like that's certainly a quality of the occult where you're reading this. And it's like holy shit, he did his fucking homework. He read so much stuff. His ideas on the occult are built upon such a kind of a massive substructure of learning, of thorough knowledge of the Western literary tradition and a good amount of the Eastern literary tradition or right. various Eastern literary traditions. He was an early devotee of the I Ching. He was into the I Ching long before it was cool. And he writes some very interesting things about it. He's just like an interesting guy. And he never asked anybody's permission to be who he was. And I always get the impression that that for a lot of people in the British intellectual scene was an unforgivable sin. And they're pursuing him after his death. He's been dead now for five, six years. And there's still, I read something recently. I couldn't tell you which paper. Somebody I think I read it, yeah. Posthumously panning another of his books. It's like those motherfuckers can't leave him alone. Well, you know, it, they're assholes. Assholes, <laughs> that's the, exactly. The, the, one and of therefore the, necessary in some way. Right. Right, so. exactly. <laughs> they have a role to play, just like black holes have a role to play that we don't quite mm-hmm. understand. We don't know what, um, but, you know. <laughs> uh, another advantage of being an autodidact is that you can engage in fortuitous or creative misreadings that... Um, That's right. That that are like what in Deleuzian philosophy are like these the, this friction between divergent series... And all of a sudden, they create a kind of virtuality that develops into a new idea, something like, for example, Wittgenstein was not trained in philosophy. He was trained as an engineer. But then the minute he put that engineering mind into philosophy, all these this new stuff started happening. Or Spinoza. Spinoza, probably one of the, the most, like, up there. He's up there with Socrates as far as, like, incredibly successful autodidacts go. Spinoza misreads a lot of the scholastic philosophy in a sense. I mean, in the purely academic sense, you could say that he misreads the concept of substance and attribute. He reinvents them in this weird way. There's a point in the occult where Colin Wilson talks about Edmund Husserl and the discovery of phenomenology as a kind of step towards embracing the occult. Like the phenomenological idea of intentionality is somehow 
mm-hmm. a way forward in this sense. But on, I yeah. think on a or strictly- the idea, Or the idea of a transcendental ego. Right. Um, a watcher that right. uh, Hus- I believe was necessary to Husserl's system that Wilson glommed Eventually, on, like, there's the yeah. higher self that told me not to drink that poison. Yeah, but Husserl would have been, no, no, that's not what I'm talking about, right? Probably, yeah. right? Yeah. But he's willing and maybe not even aware that he's uh, quote unquote misreading Husserl. Maybe Husserl is getting at that, but is unwilling to make that leap. Whereas Colin Wilson, having no, nothing to lose, is just able to see the writing on the wall and just say, well, yep. this is what he's getting at. Mm-hmm. Um, now, having said that, I part with <laughs> Husserl at the transcendental ego, but whatever. sentence and it's on the um, like third page of the introduction that I think does actually express pretty compactly what I take to be his basic thesis. The thesis like exploded at the length of almost 800 pages throughout this very long book. He attributes it to Beethoven and he says, the message of the symphonies of Beethoven could be summarized. Man is not small. He's just bloody lazy. Right. It's kind of like the Sistine Chapel fresco, isn't it? You know, yeah. God, God meaning the world is reaching out to man and mm-hmm. man is lazily kind of With just not putting in of, the effort. Sort of limply reaching yeah. back, but kind of reaching back. Oh, you know, yeah. that's fucking perfect. What a yeah. great image. Absolutely. Yeah, now I feel like just staring at that painting and listening to um, Ode to Joy, just like filling my mind with those two extremely overplayed (laughs) pieces of art that probably have a lot left to tell us. Um, I do think we need to get down to brass tacks and talk about that thesis, or at least um, the entity or the substance or the notion that he puts forward in this book, which he calls Faculty X. Mm -hmm. So Faculty X for Wilson is the faculty by which occult powers manifest in human beings. Um, Faculty X according to him, is something that's been, uh, it remains unacknowledged by mainstream science, but is, it, it is undeniably real. And it is, um, it is what is responsible for what we call the cult phenomena. So for inst- inst- instances of, he has everything in here, everything from freaking telekinesis to lycanthropes to like, yeah. uh, to, uh, to, to mind reading or uh, telepathy by location. He has examples of all of this. And what he's saying is that there's too much of this stuff on the record and in life, in everyone's life, for us to keep ignoring it. But they're, they're all connected in some way. They all have to do with something about the world which our, our normal consciousness doesn't give us access to, denies us access to, subtracts from things so that we can only experience it in these little glimpses and little um, you know, rifty moments of synchronicity. These are the moments where this faculty manifests and the reality that the faculty allows us to perceive manifests. But what's really interesting is that he doesn't, unlike other occultists, he doesn't describe that faculty as a kind of extra sense, a sixth sense, 
And you might use that, but he doesn't mean it as a sixth sense. In a way, it's kind of like the um, the sum of all the senses combined with human reason. It's like our ability to sense in the most kind of rarefied way. In a way, we could say that what he's talking about is our aesthetic sense, our sense of mm. seeing parts combine into holes that exceed their parts. There's a passage in the early on in the book where he kind of nails what he means by faculty X. And I think that I'll read it and that, that'll put us on the right track so that we're not just talking nice. about ESP versus telekinesis and that sort of thing. It's, it's not super long, but it's a few paragraphs. Okay. Um, in Johnson's Rasselas, Prince of Abyssinia, there is a scene in which the hero looks at the peaceful pastoral scenery of the happy valley where he lives and wonders why he cannot be happy like the sheep and cows. This reminds me of that Nietzsche piece we discussed. Mm -hmm. He yeah. reflects gloomily. I can discover within me no power of perception that is not glutted with its proper pleasure. Yet I do not feel myself delighted. Man has surely some latent sense for which this place affords no gratification. Or he has some desires distinct from sense, which must be satisfied before he can be happy. And Wilson goes on. The latent sense is man's evolutionary appetite, the desire to make contact with reality. But that is not all. Who has not experienced this strange frustration that comes in moments of pleasure and fulfillment? As a child, I had this feeling about water. If my parents took me on a bus excursion, I used to crane out of the window every time we went over a bridge. Something about large sheets of water excited a painful desire that I found incomprehensible. For if I actually approached the water, what could I do to satisfy this feeling? Drink it? Swim in it? So when I first read the passage from Rasselas, I understood immediately what Johnson meant by some latent sense, or desires distinct from sense, which must be satisfied before he can be happy. I labeled this latent sense faculty X, and I came to see that faculty X has something to do with reality. In Swan's Way, Proust describes how he tasted a Madeleine dipped in tea and was suddenly reminded of his childhood in Cambrai, reminded with such an intensity that for a moment he was actually there. Quote, an exquisite pleasure that invaded my senses, and at once the vicissitudes of life had become indifferent to me, its disasters innocuous, its brevity illusory. I had now ceased to feel mediocre, accidental, mortal. End quote. And then a paragraph later he says, Faculty X is simply the latent power that human beings possess to reach beyond the present. After all, we know perfectly well that the past is as real as the present, and that New York and Singapore and Lhasa and Stepney Green are all as real as this place I happen to be in at the moment. Yet my senses do not agree. They assure me that this place, here and now, is far more real than any other place or any other time. Only in certain moments of great inner intensity do I know this to be a lie. Faculty X is a sense of reality, the reality of other places and other times, and it is the possession of it, fragmentary and uncertain though it is, that distinguishes man from all other animals. Now, I found that rather revelatory when it comes to figuring out what the hell he's talking about when he talks about the occult, because it's not what you would expect. It's something much more present, much more intimately knowable to each of us than some extrasensory faculty that some people possess. It's just the ability to know that we live in a world that might exist without us. That's essentially what it is, which places him firmly in a kind of materialist orientation, but not a materialism we've seen yet, I don't think. Uh, maybe we've seen it once or twice, glimpses of it with Bergson or maybe with Spinoza, but uh, a kind of uh, realism that would be the key to the occult. And that would go against the grain of a lot of occult 
intellectual history. Elsewhere, he has some interesting kind of evolutionary hypotheses about faculty X. He says on the one hand that magic is the science of the future. Uh, this is a deliberate inversion of the way James Frazier, for example, in The Golden Bow, and many people influenced by that book, wanted to say that magic is the science of the past. That right. uh, first we had magic and then we got better at manipulating reality and it became a science. And Colin Wilson says, oh, au contraire, magic is the science of the future. So faculty X is our future. It's a way forward. And he is, in this sense, very optimistic. He's like, there is a way forward. There is a way for us to transcend the limitations of our present state. But he also wants to say that faculty X is a legacy from like a deep and archaic and animal past. Elsewhere in the book, I'm not going to try and find it. Um, he does say at one point, he says, civilization cannot evolve further until the occult is taken for granted on the same level as atomic energy which yeah. gives a sense of why he thinks that magic is a science of the future. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I am inclined to agree with him on that. Maybe not quite stating it as strongly, but I also feel very firmly that in my world, in the world of the academic humanities, we've reached certain dead ends that we are not going to get ourselves out of until we are able to get down with some of the ideas that, for example, Wilson, but not only Wilson, is uh, laying down in this book. So from that point of view, you know, I actually agree with him. Um, but there's also an idea that pops up throughout this book that faculty X is actually an inheritance of our animal past. He says animals possess this. What they don't possess is self-reflection. At least we didn't, I mean, we can't know. Um, but uh, he doesn't think that animals possess self-reflection. And only human beings have reason. Um, this is Wilson's position. But that we actually share faculty X with animals. And he tells stories of uh, dogs that uh, know that their masters are coming home days before they show up and yeah. um, this kind of thing. Actually, and there's plenty of examples of these kinds of, these kinds of things uh, happening. And he suggests that around the origin of anatomically modern human beings around 50,000 years ago, you start seeing a new kind of human being is able to affect more changes in the world through, you know, kind of rational, deliberative, and kind of causal, mechanistic sort of process, uh, a calculative process. But that as human beings come to rely on those faculties, the lately acquired faculties of the modern human, their ability to call upon faculty X becomes correspondingly attenuated, it weakens. Mm -hmm. And he says, well, Shamans are those people in kind of archaic societies. Uh, the shamans are people who are able to retain a connection to that animal life. And indeed, it's no accident from that point of view that shamanism emphasizes so much like inhabiting different spirit forms, you know, as a bird animal forms, or, yeah, or right, deer, right. you know, that you are becoming animal to use a kind of Delizo Guattarian term. Uh, Which they the, use the specifically to define sorcery. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that one of the many ideas that, the interesting ideas that Wilson has about magic is that uh, at least aspects of shamanistic magic, which he, I think, holds in fairly high regard, is actually a calculated retrieval of something that's very deep and buried and ancient. Yeah. But it's yes. also the science of the future. Well, I mean, I mean, 
animals are definitely realists. <laughs> They're certainly not Castropian <laughs> idealists. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, absolutely. There's something about reason, about the advent of reason, that brings in a kind of solipsistic turn in the human in human consciousness, which haunts us always. Our ability to distinguish things, our ability to conceptualize things as distinct from one another, whereas animals seem to react to things properly as distinct objects. But, I mean, I think it's fairly safe to say that dogs don't have a secret dog language in their heads for conceptualizing. Like, go- dogs don't go off at night to dog university and, you know, study, you know, th- there's a difference in... Dog physics. Right, dog physics, right. They intuitively and directly experience the world as such. We have a kind of filter... You might, if you, you're inclined to think mythically or religiously, you might say there's been a fall into consciousness, which gives us great power, according to the biblical story, the knowledge of good and evil, but also gives us a great burden, which is separation from that flow of things, which is the world. So you can see how you lose that, like, and how magic might be a way to recover what we've lost. But at the same time, it's not like... Um, I don't think that Wilson would say that we'd be better off as animals, but that they somehow the synthesis or combination of this retrieval and this embrace of reason, because one of the things he makes very clear in this book is that he believes that science is able to explain at least some parts of what's called the occult. And that should, empirical science is the key to figuring this shit out. In the first chapter, he brings up cybernetics as a, a, a step along that path, that, that cybernetics is giving us what is, and genetics are giving us what is um, uh, undeniably an intelligent universe. So we're, all, we're already kind of like aligning nature with this logos, which is rational thought. And he believes that there is a way of knowing scientifically of knowing things that so far have been relegated to that kind of dustbin of the occult. So there's a kind of combination of reason and intuition that he's calling us, I think, to embrace. And um, yeah, there's that yep. retrieval, but not it's not an atavistic kind of regression into a kind no. of sham- shamanic archaic state that he's calling for. At the very beginning, he makes it quite clear what he means is that Modern humans have lost the sense of what he calls huaka, huaka being an Inca term for, um, you know, what Polynesians called mana or the Chinese called chi, that that kind of ether, uh, that imaginal ether in which things exist, which connects thoughts and feelings and objects, which make them all on some level on the same plane, which puts them all on the same level. Um, the, The sense of meaning, the sense of significance, the sense of of meaningful potentialities. He says, we have to learn to expand inward until we have somehow reestablished the sense of huaka, until we have recreated the feeling of, quote, unseen forces that was common to primitive man. So there's a retrieval of the archaic combined with like all the power that science and rationalism gives us, that that's the future. That's the magic of the future I think he's talking about. Or else he would be talking about the magic of the past, obviously, since he, if he would just be talking about recovering what we had, he's talking about some new synthesis. Just as an aside, I just wanted to point out earlier that you know, the Fraser line, you know, magic is the science, the old science, what science was before. Um, Buddhism and in Hinduism and Christianity are old religions. But whenever we say shit like that, um, it's kind of nonsense, 
Because mm-hmm. since, since those religions still exist, let's say, and since magic is still practiced, we really don't know whether these things are young or old, you know? Yeah. Um, I can imagine Justin, like, uh, who was that emperor who reverted to paganism uh, in Byzantium? Julian. Julian the Apostate. So Julian reverts to paganism. He thought Christianity was old and tired. And this was in what? I don't know. Like the 5th century or something? 5th, 3rd or 3rd, between the 3rd the and the 5th century. Um, it was young, man. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. so, so whenever people uh, reach for that kind of line of argumentation of going, well, that's so... Demodated, so, so outmoded, out, uh, outdated. It betrays a kind of bias, which is rather inexcusable when you think th- think of things kind of in a semi-objective way. But well, it's the classic move of modernism, which is to condescend to the past and to believe right. that things are constantly, uh, you know, going out of style, mm-hmm. uh, and we got to figure out what the new style is going to be. Right. Wilson is the rare modern who has that kind of future-oriented style of thinking, you know, talking about magic as a science of the future, without condescending to the past or viewing it as something that we move beyond. Like Marshall McLuhan, he's very interested in retrievals. Right, Um, or Terence McKenna, right. Yeah, Yeah. retrievals that suddenly they mean something new. So there is this quality of the new and, and a dynamic motion towards the new. Uh, but that dynamic motion consists of constant loops and retrievals. Right. Absolutely. And reversals. Yes. There's no linear progress. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't work that way, even though there is progress. There yeah. are achievements. Like I was thinking about this this morning. Um, you know, there's a way in which you could say, well, the Greek ideas about what lightning was, let's say, the Greek theories about lightning were false and our theories about lightning are correct well there's a way in which that's true obviously the greeks would have profited to know what we know about lightning and electricity they would have profited if they knew that but that doesn't discredit their theories to the extent that their theories bring out other qualities of the phenomenon of lightning which our theories improperly reified blind us to so Mm -hmm. Things are more than what they are according to science. Things are also what they are according to the sensorium, according to the aesthetic sensibilities, according to the imaginal, uh, the imagination. So a retrieval should enable us to revise and refresh more recent discoveries or things we take for granted. So there is a kind of progress in that sense, but it's not a linear progressive uh, progress where one theory after another is discredited and uh, we get to better and better theories. The theories get better in one way, but then blind us in other ways. Foucault says Mm -hmm. this in the debate with Chomsky in a very interesting way. I otherwise Mm. think Foucault's a nihilist bastard, but whatever. (laughs) But he he got that one thing right. (laughs) Yeah, he did. I love how he starts this book. It's so confident. The thesis of this book is revolutionary, and I must state it clearly at the outset. 
No wonder people hated on him. It's just like he's willing to say, I'm about to hit you with a revolutionary idea. Um, and then what's funny is that he doesn't state it clearly at the outset. He's a very discursive sort of thinker. He likes to kind of warm to his theme and and work towards it. And the, there's a, a quality of generosity in the writing. Um, this is a book that repays just dipping in. You can open at any random place and read a page. And it's so full of like kind of fresh turns of phrase. It's so fun to read. Um, anyway, so immediately after that dramatic opening sentence, he's sort of establishing not so much the thesis as the raison d'etre of the thesis. I think it's a few paragraphs, but I'm going to read it anyway. Primitive man believed the world was full of unseen forces, the orenda of the American Indians, the huaca of the ancient Peruvians. The age of reason said that these forces had only ever existed in man's imagination. Only reason could show man the truth about the universe. The trouble was that man became a thinking pygmy, and the world of the rationalists was a daylight place in which boredom, triviality, and ordinariness were ultimate truths. But the main trouble with human beings is their tendency to become trapped in the triviality of everydayness, to borrow Heidegger's phrase, in the suffocating world of their personal preoccupations. And every time they do this, they forget the immense world of broader significance that stretches around them. And since man needs a sense of meaning to release his hidden energies, this forgetfulness pushes him deeper into depression and boredom, the sense that nothing is worth the effort. In a sense, the Indians and Peruvians were closer to the truth than modern man, for their intuition of unseen forces kept them wide open to the vistas of meaning that surround us. Goethe's Faust can be seen to be the greatest symbolic drama of the West, since it is the drama of the rationalist suffocating in the dusty room of his personal consciousness, caught in the vicious circle of boredom and futility, which in turn leads to still further boredom and futility. Faust's longing for the occult is the instinctive desire to believe in the unseen forces, the wider significances that can break the circuit. The interesting thing is that Western man developed science and philosophy because of this consuming passion for wider significances. It was not his reason that betrayed him, but his inability to reason clearly, to understand that a healthy mind must have an input of meaning from the universe if it is to keep up an output of vital effort. The fatal error was the failure of the scientists and rationalists to keep their minds open to the sense of huaca, the unseen forces. They tried to measure life with a six-inch ruler and weigh it with kitchen scales. This was not science. It was crudity only one degree beyond that of savages, and Swift made game of it in the voyage to Laputa. Man lives and evolves by eating significance as a child eats food. The deeper his sense of wonder, the wider his curiosity, the stronger his vitality becomes, and the more powerful his grip on his own existence. And I feel like, in that, especially in that last paragraph, Wilson is talking about himself, and he's talking about the principle by which he saved his own life. Right. Well, by which every any life is saved. You exactly. Know, you, you read the myth of Sisyphus by Camus. He, he lays it clearly. It's like the question of philosophy is the question of suicide. Um, hmm. You do philosophy in order to give yourselves reasons to live. And any reason to live is a telos. It can't be an efficient cause. Oh, I live because I've evolved to live. It's my programming. Antinatalists like to say this. 
Because you'll go to 1980s, you'll say, well, if you think life isn't worth it, why don't you just off yourself? They hate that fucking question because they think it's unfair. How rude to say that. But I mean, <laughs> they, they, they just told us existence is not worth it. Um, so it's a natural question. And the answer is always, well, it's our programming. Now that I'm alive, I'm afraid. You're afraid of what? You're afraid of meaninglessness. You're afraid of nothingness. You're afraid of there's something about this life which has intrinsic value. There's no other way of phrasing it. And so significance is the fundamental. I mean, we used to go on for pages and pages, you and I, before we started the podcast about the, the difference between signification and significance. It's not the same thing. Signification is what something means in a referential, in a kind of referential way, like semiotically, what it denotes, what it signifies. Significance is not something that points to something out of, outside of itself. Significance is always an end in itself. Like a painting is beautiful, not because it represents allegorically, I don't know, Plato's myth of the cave, which represents allegorically uh, the structures of human consciousness. That's what not what makes it beautiful. And some level, things are either significant or they're not. Because any signification is only worth articulating if it is significant. And it's not the same thing. There's all kinds of banal significations that don't matter to anybody. Like there are banal truths that nobody really needs to bother with all that much that aren't that interesting. But there are truths that are interesting. What's the difference in a purely rational world? How could you impute that difference? The difference can only be a difference in significance and how something shines on its own as its own meaning. So that's, I think that's what he means by man evolves and lives by eating significance as a child eats food. It's that even a person like David Benatar, a very smart philosopher, South Africa, who wrote a book called Better Never to Have Been, in which he puts forward an argument for antinatalism, kind of supporting the progressive and willful and voluntary self-extinction of the human race as the most moral thing we could do in this universe. Um, even someone like that is writing out of a sense that what he's writing has significance. And mm -hmm. so the significance always betrays the signification or always puts mm -hmm. it in a wider framework. That's what mm -hmm. exactly what he's talking about when he talks about wider significances. You can't express, for example, a denial of life without implicitly relaying your belief that this expression is significant. <laughs> you know, like, so like, that's why Nietzsche said existence cannot be judged. It's precisely what cannot be judged. Uh, and that was Nietzsche's argument against nihilism. So like the whole kind of modern rationalist project, that reductive project of reducing things to their molecular structure or to their, you know, a purely material components um, exists in a wider framework where such a take on things, such a thesis has value. And so the question of value is always reasserted, is always snuck in through the back door and it's, you can never get rid of it. And it's not explainable from within reductive materialism. Yeah. Funny you said that any natalists get annoyed when you say, well, if you really think that, why don't you kill yourself? Like, that's rude. I remember listening to that podcast episode that Sam Harris did with David Benatar. I almost called him Pat Benatar. Dave, a very different person, David <laughs> Benatar. Was um, Pat Benatar a 19 natalist? Probably. No, nah, doubt it. <laughs> Too rock and roll for that. Yeah. But uh, he says at the beginning, he's like, 
saying all kinds of things are like, you don't get to ask me this and you don't get to ask me that, which right. by the way, that's kind of a symptom that your philosophy uh, is some bullshit. Papier mache. Like, papier mache armor, exactly. We yeah. are going to leave the following questions entirely out of bounds. And one of them is, well, are you just depressed? <laughs> we won't, <laughs> like it would somehow be uh, rude or, or, or out of bounds uh, to talk about subjective mental state. Well, but that like, is kind of an ad hominem to be fair, but yes. It is, except, you know, that Wilson makes it clear that our subjective state of enlivenment, our ability to feel faculty X, our ability to engage, uh, is that our, how to put this? I don't know if this is a right thing to say, but, but that our philosophy is going to be determined by the degree to which we can or cannot engage with this meaning, right. with this, Again, use our faculties to attain uh, a state that is proper to our condition. And if your philosophy originates explicitly from the denial of that stratum of meaning, and which is what happens in depression, depression to me could be best described as an organic condition by which we systematically choke off faculty X. We choke off our ability to experience that thing out there, that meaning, mm -hmm. the meaningfulness of the universe. Um, then it becomes actually quite relevant to say like, okay, if your whole philosophy comes from a project of choking off your ability to engage with meaning, I don't know... Yeah. Is, yeah. It, is this a bullshit argument? No, it's, I'm, no not you're what I'm trying to articulate. You're, you're articulating exactly what Nietzsche said, which is that uh, before you ask yourself about the truth value of, a, of a, a philosophical proposition, ask yourself who says it? What is the attitude of one who says this? What is the outlook of one who says this? Because you can make a very strong logical argument that life isn't worth living. In fact, I think it's the most self evident logical argument you can make. Mm -hmm. And yet, and yet, people want to live. So there's a, a Zapfi, I think he is, a Scandinavian thinker who was the first real kind of like published antinatalist. Uh, I believe he wrote towards the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. Z-A-P-F-F-E, I believe. He's a main source in Thomas Ligotti's book, The Conspiracy Against the Human Race, which is his nonfiction tract on antinatalism. Zapfi believed that consciousness is a curse, right? It's horrible. It's, there's nothing good about it, but we have these strategies, these strategies of distraction that we call culture, basically, uh, that we come up with in order to make this intolerable condition tolerable. But once you see through the, the charade of these illusory, made-up structures, then you come to the sober realization that there's nothing good about being alive and that the only sensible thing to do is to, first of all, not create more humans for once because you're creating, you're basically bringing into being all the suffering that person is going to live through and you're dooming another soul to die. Uh, but you must also extinguish yourself, if not physically, then at least spiritually, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like an extreme ascetism that he's advocating. 
But ultimately, the problem with any argument of that sort is that it's always made ultimately on moral grounds. You can only say that suffering is bad because it's bad. And so there's a value mm. judgment implicit in the argumentation, which in itself contradicts the, or the orientation of the argument in the sense that you're saying um, there is some kind of scale in go of good and evil and existence is on the negative side. But <laughs> how could you possibly make that argument? How could you make a moral argument about a world that is completely amoral? You could say, well, thank God we have these structures that make life tolerable because it makes things at least somewhat pleasurable in our heads, if only for a time. Thank God for those. Let's embrace those. That would be kind of irrational. But to say that those structures are innately immoral, that they need to be destroyed, that we need to realize and we need to extinguish ourselves as a species, that's a moral argument. Yeah. And that's where I completely don't understand where Benatar and Zapfi are coming from, or Ligotti for that matter. Uh, I mm -hmm. don't understand what gives them the right in their own cosmology, in their own metaphysics, what gives them the right to judge something that is innately and intrinsically and completely without a moral dimension. Mm. Um, where does that jump come from? Well, they could say mm. in the end, well, I don't like it. That's all they can say in the end. It's like, I don't like it being alive. Okay, well, that's not much of a philosophical argument. Which brings which, us which back is to why our, it is actually relevant to say, were you depressed you, when you wrote this? That's my, that's my whole point, is that it's, that's exactly yeah. what Sam Harris is getting at. I don't, <laughs> I don't usually agree with Sam Harris, but I liked him in that episode. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he really got him at the end with... He was asking Benatar, on your logic, on your view, wouldn't it be a good thing to do to painlessly kill someone in their sleep? And yeah. Benatar is like, well, no, it's not. Because first of all, they're talking about murder. Is it okay to kill people because I'm delivering them from this burden of existence? Mm -hmm. And of course, he's like, no, because you're causing so much suffering by killing people, threatening them, killing them. That's, that's completely unacceptable. So he says, well, what if I kill them painlessly in their sleep? Aren't I doing them a favor? And then Benatar has this argument. It's like, no, because once you're alive, then life has value. Yeah. But then that's, that betrays that whole circular logic where value yeah. is presumed, is, is assumed throughout the argument. He's assuming the significance that he says doesn't exist. And that's a huge problem for him. I'm not sure I can say why I think this, but this is what I think. Life is its own justification. And the error of antinatalism inheres in believing that you can somehow stand outside of life from some yes. view from nowhere. Right. To somehow stand outside of life and judge it. Right. Maybe that's just a way of rephrasing what, you, what you've been saying. Yes, it is. And it's saying it clearer. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I had to work through the thought. So, um, the, that's, that's exactly what it is. It assumes an outside perspective. Um, but a 1980s will have plenty of ways around that. Ultimately life is well, yeah, whatever you want to make of it. Because it's always these motherfuckers who live in their heads. Right. And we it's have, just we like, have it's, several antinatalist fans. Note. <laughs> Sorry guys. No, no offense. You're assholes. <laughs> <laughs> no, you didn't mean that. You didn't mean that. Um, Not at all. But uh, some of my best friends hate life itself. So um, I love those friends.
<laughs> um, but this is what uh, Wilson is talking about when he talks about uh, the vicious cycle of boredom and futility, which in turn leads to still further boredom and futility. The drama of the rationalist suffocating in the dusty room of his personal consciousness caught in the vicious circle of boredom and futility, which in turn leads to still further boredom and futility. And then he brings up Faust, which is absolutely on the money. It's worth noting, Faust is a scholar. Right. Rationalism gives you a finite world. You know, the world that makes sense. The it's world a is a finite game. Right. Yeah. The rational world is a tiny, finite subset of this infinite fractal chaos that extends to the boundless reaches of the universe, the hyper chaos. And rationalism is self-protective. It wants to establish its own boundaries and protect those. Um, actually, one good way of thinking about what reason is, is something like the Gnostic Demiurge. Right. Which uh, creates this limited world and then insists on telling the inhabitants of this world, I am the one true God. There is no God before me. There's nothing outside yeah. of Meanwhile, what I have created. Closing the curtain on the Pleroma behind him where the true God. It's, <laughs> it's exactly. like, don't look over there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Reason is a jealous God Yeah, that will have no gods before it. Apollo was, was an If you want to talk about assholes, we could talk about Apollo, the god. <laughs> he was a fucking asshole. Um, so is Dionysus, but, you know, you got to give each god its, his due. And um, Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, absolutely. A reason can be uh, a tyrant. Um, there's that famous etching by Goya, the sleep of reason breeds monsters. Yeah. Which can be read in two ways, right? Because you see the painting shows a guy asleep at a desk and you see all these nocturnal animals kind of flying out from behind the desk, like out of his mind kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And you could read it in the kind of Fraser-esque kind of way or Richard Dawkins kind of way and read it as, well, when reason falls asleep, monsters come. The superstitions of the past return. But you can also read it, and I think this is more in keeping with the rest of Goya's work as a painter and and thinker, uh, that reason itself is a kind of sleep that breathes its own monsters, mm -hmm. you know? Yep. Um, there's a line from yep. uh, Deleuze and Guattari. It's like, it's not the sleep of reason that breathes monsters, but cold clinical rationality breeds yep. monsters. Yep. And so, yeah, it is its own passion. There is a passion of reason, which yeah. reason itself denies. Yeah. Um, Reason reified is a blatant and almost kind of perverse example of a breach of the law of non-contradiction. Well, its expression is the idea of a view from nowhere, a perfectly self-contradictory and impossible right. idea exactly. that I can be objective, stand outside the universe that I'm already in. Yes. And also that you could be nowhere and have a view that in yeah. itself makes no, no sense at all. Yeah, and so the point that I was making about Anonatalus is that they have gotten stuck in their own head, in reason, that they are completely possessed by this demiurge. You know, they calculate the dimensions of this finite world, and then surprise, surprise, that finite world is imprisoning. It's a nightmare. Yeah. And they're like, oh, shit, better never to have been born in this fucking world. Yeah. Well, you put yourself in that world, asshole. That's on you. 
Except, you know, you gotta, I mean, you know, you gotta extend compassion to these guys and be like, I hope you find a way out. But for as long as they're hoping that reason is the one tool that they need in their toolbox, the only thing that they need, they're never gonna find a way out. Agreed. But the thing is that they don't want to find a way out. And to their credit, okay, I'll just say this to the antinatalists, I will never try to convince someone that they must have children, that they must breed, you know, like, like the church would, I would never, if someone says, I don't want to bring a child into this world, having a child myself, I can respect that because I fucking, I don't regret it. You know, it's the type of thing that when it happens, you can't possibly regret. You just, it would be absurd to regret it. But at the same time is I'm fully aware of what I've done. Is it worth it? Yeah, I think it's worth it. And so do my kids, as it turns out. (laughs) Uh, But I wouldn't fault someone for feeling that affect, you know, at that purely affective level, for feeling the suffering of of existence is unconscionable and unacceptable. I can understand that. And I can also understand someone like that wanting to reach out to others like that and communicating that and putting it down. And that's kind of Ligotti's ultimate defense that he um, put to me once is that, Ultimately, he's like, you're lucky to feel the way you are. I feel this way. And there are others who feel this way. And they find comfort in this. And, you know, sure. I mean, I find comfort in that. I love reading Ligotti. I love reading Beckett. I love that type of uh, profound kind of Sierra-style pessimism that just gives in to what is so self-evident about life, the darkness of it and the heart, the, mm. the hardness mm-hmm. and cruelty of it. Um there's a certain therapeutic quality to that type of writing. So I wouldn't want them. I don't know if I'd extend that to Pat Benatar, uh, Pat, <laughs> to David Benatar, whose book is a little, it's not nearly as engaging as Ligotti's writing on this or Ciaran for that matter. Uh, there's no humor in it. For me, what I love about Ciaran, Ligotti and Schopenhauer and maybe not Schopenhauer, but certainly Freud, who is another, ultimately another kind of nihilist, is um, there's the humor in their writing, the kind of sardonic, kind of winking at you humor about it all. I mean, Ligotti subtitled his book, A Contrivance of Horror, knowing full well that this is one particular contrivance. It's something he feels he wants to express, but he's very much aware that it's not the only take, that it's not a, it's not a, uh, a final truth that he's expressing. So I can I can resonate with that. But you know, we said at the beginning, assholes have a function. <laughs> and I, I mean, I, I'm not saying antinatalists are assholes. Yeah, no. Um, but antinatalists have a function. Let's be real. They do. Right. They have an important part to play. They represent a radical honesty about something that it is all too easy to be dishonest about. And uh, right. I'm going to tie, tie this back to one of my pet topics, combat sports. Anybody who's listened to this podcast for any length of time knows I'm a degenerate fight fan. And this is a question that comes up among more thoughtful fight fans. And yes, they exist, which is how do you justify taking pleasure in a sport where people are hurt, permanently hurt? You know, every time you get knocked out your brain is suffering irreversible damage. Now, some people wear that damage better than others. You know, some fighters live to a ripe old age with all of their faculties intact. You know, they don't slur their words. They're still like bright and popping and they don't have significant injuries and they're fine. 
And then there are others who turn into vegetables. Dementia pugilistica, or as we now call it, CTE. It's not only fight sports. I mean, even soccer has its problems with CTE. But fight sports, it's just an undeniable part of the game. And there's so many sad, tragic stories of fighters who are permanently ruined by the sport that they practice. And the costs are not only physical, they can be moral or existential. There's a, a really haunting essay called Fights Over Joe. I forget who wrote it. It's in the Library of America anthology of great boxing writing, which is a terrific book. And it talks about Joe Frazier, smoking Joe Frazier, the guy who fought Muhammad Ali to a standstill in a trilogy of fights, which is generally considered the greatest of all time, the, the absolute acme of combat sports, like a mythic level where two men are just digging all the way deep into their souls in a, a contest that just transcends the sport. And those fights took a big chunk out of both those guys. As you probably know, Muhammad Ali had uh, severe degenerative nerve problems late in life. So anybody who saw him light the Olympic torch, you know, seeing this frail man with his hand trembling, you know, as he holds the torch, uh, boxing did that to him and the fights that he had with Joe Frazier certainly contributed a lot. And as everybody knows, Muhammad Ali had a sharp tongue and a quick wit, and he honed that wit on Joe Frazier mercilessly. And, you know, Ali was just adept at selling fights, selling a, a grudge match. He was a showman. And to some extent, Ali was not sincere, but he used whatever handles Frazier gave him. And so one handle was that he talked about Joe Frazier as if he was an Uncle Tom, as if he was a, a sellout to the white establishment. And he, Muhammad Ali, was a proud, militant black man uh, who never did any such thing. Not saying that Ali was anything other than a proud, militant black man, but at the same time, he was very cynically deploying that part of his image to turn Joe Frazier into a foil. He wasn't, you know, okay, leaving the whole business of the fight game and selling a fight, that's an extremely hurtful thing to do to somebody. In fact, early in their careers, Frazier and Ali were friends. And so for Frazier, this was betrayal. And Frazier never got over it. And that's kind of the point of this essay, Fights Over Joe, is that Frazier was one of those people who actually escaped major damage, even though he got beat pillar to post in his career, including those three unforgettable fights with Ali. He managed to live to a pretty ripe old age and with all his faculties intact and in pretty good physical shape. But even there, you say, okay, he escaped. No, he didn't because he never got over that feeling of hurt and betrayal. And Ali wanted to make friends with Frazier and Frazier just wouldn't have it. There are all these stories of like when those two guys were at the same parties, old men, decades after their fights, people trying to keep them apart because they knew that Frazier would just lose it and start swearing at him, yelling at him. Uh, when Ali quite movingly powered through his degenerative nerve disease to light the Olympic torch, somebody asked Frazier about it and Frazier said, well, I just wish he'd fall in like fall into that like pillar of fire. Wow. You know, harsh, petty shit that really diminishes Frazier. 
you know, even somebody who escaped damage of the boxing game, he didn't escape. And that is a classic fucking fight story. One way or another, the fight game will take it out of everybody. And if you are a fan of the fight game, you have to get down with that fact. And we've talked about that in our boxing episode. If you want to be an ethical fight fan, if you want to be a thoughtful fight fan, you can't just whistle past the graveyard. You can't just be like, oh, well, you know, those guys get rich and blah, blah, blah. No, you have to understand that bad outcomes, that's not a contingency that happens to some people and not others. That's an inherent part of the fight game. The fight game is inherently ugly, inherently, in some sense, is bad. And to me, this is actually one reason to be a fight fan is because in that respect, it's like life. None of us get out of here alive. And there is an ugliness, a radical ugliness to life. And you see this a lot in a lot of occult thinking where people just want to deny that aspect of existence. And when I say that I respect the antinatalists for being radically honest and insistently honest about something. It's that stain that won't wash out, that inherent and inerasable ugliness of existence. And yet, as I said before, life is its own justification. Even in the violence and cruelty of nature, never mind human existence, there is also this kind of dynamic play of force and vitality and meaningfulness. That's why we're here. And that's why I, that's why I follow the fight game because I see that flickering out of a fight like the Ali Frazier fights, but it's a light flickering out of the deepest darkness. And we have somehow to be down with both of those things. What I really like about Colin Wilson's The Occult is its realism. That which would incline me to say that he is on the side of the object as much as on the side of the subject, if not more, okay? He's putting forward a way of thinking about the occult, which I don't think is very popular or very widespread amongst people who are interested in the occult. 
but I think it's, it's, it's really promising. And I think it makes this book super important if magic is to be a science of the future. Most of the book is just spent giving example after example, kind of history of the, a very idiosyncratic history of the occult, where he's mm-hmm. bringing up characters and, and stories and legends and just like kind of just accumulating this huge, rich database of, of evidence. And at the end, he's trying to bring it all together and he, he brings it in to a very narrow framework where he says that ultimately there is some kind of ether some kind of energy, some force we don't yet understand at work in the world that's deeply essential to the way we experience the world, uh, which we need to come to grips with. At one point, he quotes Edouard Chury, his book, Great Initiates, an occult book. Modern natural philosophy, in order to explain the world, has been obliged to recognize an imponderable universal agent and has even proved its presence. On this main principle of cosmogony, Zoroaster is in agreement with Heraclitus, Pythagoras with St. Paul, the Kabbalists with Paracelsus. Sibylle Maya reigns everywhere, the mighty soul of the world, the vibrating and plastic substance which the breath of the creative spirit uses at will. The fluid becomes transformed, it rarefies or densifies according to the souls it clothes or the world it envelops. And he links that up with Wilhelm Reich's idea of organ. There have been attempts in the last three, four hundred years to come up with a name or with a conception of that universal agent, which is what the Greeks might have recognized as phusis, right? The word, we get Mm -hmm. the word physics from it, matter. The Latin word matter comes from the word mater, mother. There is a tendency in occult circles right now and in the weirdosphere to denigrate matter, to denigrate mater to denigrate the substance of the world and to triangulate or like converge all phenomena on the subject so that the subject is essentially a view from nowhere because space and time themselves are constructs of the mind. And therefore, all that exists is uh, what manifests to me, to the subject. And I think that Wilson's offering us a way out of that in this book. And um, as I was reading it, Another text I've been diving back into recently is the first chapter of Bergson's Matter and Memory, which is very precisely an attempt to think past, to think our way out of the seesaw of materialism versus idealism, subject and object dichotomy, that dichotomizing modern conceit that Descartes uh, came up with when he split being from thinking. When he said, I think, therefore I am, what he did is essentially is he subordinated being to thinking. I think, therefore I am. I think, therefore something is. Whereas Parmenides, the ancient Greeks, thought that thinking and being were the same thing in the sense that thinking and being obeyed the same laws. And that's why Plato could believe something like it is possible to think reality as such, that there is nothing stopping us from thinking truth. And that is anathema in modern thinking. But it's also, it's a disposition that's shared by the occult community, which takes refuge in the argument that some things are just not conceptualizable. Some things are just not thinkable. Some things you just can't think. There's a limit to what we can think, which I think that Wilson is arguing indirectly against. I think that he's basically positing the possibility of a science of the sensible. 
a science of the occult, um, a materialism that would include the things that our current materialism rejects. And Bergson, in his first chapter in Modern Memory, pulls this off in a really almost miraculous way, such that According to Deleuze, the first chapter of Matter and Memory can be taken out of Bergsonism altogether because it seems to challenge everything that Bergson wrote before and everything he wrote after. That first chapter is one of the two instances, according to Deleuze, where a pure imminence was achieved. But this is not the pure imminence of the imminent frame, the pure imminence of the rationalist reduction of the world to what is measurable, to ratio. It's an imminence that includes everything that that materialism wanted to get rid of. That, that to me is what's most special about this book is the intimations of a science of the future that would include the magical. That doesn't mean that it will explain it away. In fact, it's precisely our theory of explanation, our theory of final explanations that we may have to abandon in order to have this science, such that this science will start to look a lot more like art than our current science does. And uh, there's that great passage at the end of his little essay that we've discussed, uh, Graham Harmon, at the end of the essay, what's it called? The Third Table, where he says that philosophy must become art. In a way, maybe science also can become art if it is to embrace that which it has so far tried to deny. But that also implies that art becomes, in a certain sense, a science. That art becomes not just a way of reflecting on the world, but a way of knowing the world. And that aesthetic thinking, what Wilson calls faculty X, can give us access, access to the world as such. That that wall that Kant erected with Descartes and Hume's help between us and the thing in itself, us and the world as such, can finally be lifted so that we can say with Bergson that the things we experience in the world are the world. They're not mediated. They're not constructed by our neuro neurological you know, apparatus. We perceive the world as it is, and yet we never perceive the fullness of the world. There's always more to know. What happens when you make that move is that that transcendental mystery, which you know has given a boner to many an idealist, is brought down into this imminent world. The mystery isn't the mystery of God or the mystery of life. It's a mystery on a level with mystery novels. What happens next? What else is possible? What else can we find out about this world? What else can we know? Instead of banishing all that stuff that makes life significant and special and miraculous outside the world, it brings it into the world. And um, for me, that's what Wilson, that's the check he's handing out. And I hope that we one day get to cash it. <laughs> it's funny because I have an instinctive reaction against uh, what you say when you say uh, that you don't like this idea common in occult circles, that there's some things we just can't think. Yeah. Because you know, as, a, as a practicing mystic, I'm like, well... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm constantly dealing with things that are, you know, it's not about thinking. And actually, as a practitioner of an art that is not, uh, I mean, there's an element of thought to it, but like the stuff that's going on in a Bach fugue or the simplest song, you know, a children's song, um, is only partly amenable to reason or propositional reason, like being able to express propositions about this thing. Yeah. Um, 
to me, you know, a fundamental idea of mysticism is that there is a ground of the unmanifest that is unspeakable. But at the same time, when you think about certainly where I'm at now, I mean, I'm doing Cohen study, which is all about finding ways to speak the unspeakable. Right. Um, the meta koan, I guess I would say the koan of koans that I'm sort of working with right now is something that I'm not sure who said it. And I think I've said this on the show before, like there's nothing to say. And yet you have to say something. And this is one reason why I get annoyed when people say that uh, mysticism, whether of a Christian sort or a Buddhist sort or some other kind, Sufi or Taoist or whatever, people often, especially, of course, rationalists, believe that mysticism is quietism, that it's just this uh, infantile regression and seeking of refuge from the hard, cold realities of the world. Uh, and it's not. It's not. I think that it's possible for it to be that. I think there are monastic traditions that really do have a kind of contempt for the world and turn their back on the world and fine, you do you. Uh, but to me, the mysticism that inspires me is the mysticism that is all about the world, engaging with the world. Someone like Thomas Merton, for example, someone like the poet Gary Snyder, hmm. they're fully down with the, there is nothing to say side of things. And yet somehow we have to express that nothing here yeah. and now in mm. this very life, in this world, in manifestation. And I find that very inspiring. I mean, it's perhaps a fool's errand. Maybe it's like um, an impossible thing to ask, but it's not just trying to take this wild thing and domesticating it or like territorializing the deterritorialized. Or maybe it is that, I don't know, but uh, it's not just that. It's, um, no, what it is is creation. That you are not, you're not assimilating that which is unworldly to the world. You are making the world. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>